Amen. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good to see you. My name is Blake. I'm the pastor here. And we are about halfway through a series called Questioning Christianity, where we've been answering objections to the Christian faith. And this morning we cover the objection, aren't Southern Baptists racist? And you may be thinking, what? How does this fit into the series? First, let me just do a little bit of explaining. We at Southside are a Southern Baptist church. If you're new to denominational world, really what that means is just a few simple things. It means that we agree to the Baptist faith and message 2000. So doctrinally, we take the Bible seriously. That's something that historically Southern Baptists have done. And so we agree with the confessional statement. And then we, along with all other churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, give money towards what's known as the cooperative program. And so we, we give 5% of our budget to uh, our state conventions. Most of it goes to the national convention. And it's basically the idea that we can do more together. And so things like disaster relief, things like, uh, for me, the big ones are global missions. For example, we sent a family off recently, Jay and Sharonda Fellers. We wouldn't have been able to do that if it was just Southside Baptist Church. But when we have millions of people giving towards this end, we're able to do a whole lot more. So global missions, local missions, disaster relief, theological education. The idea is that we can do more if we cooperate together. And so that's what it means to be a Southern Baptist church. If the Southern Baptist convention ever goes astray, we can just pull out. They have no control over us whatsoever. So we're part of the convention. And so why ask if Southern Baptists are racist? Well, it's good to know history. In 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention was founded, and it was founded when white delegates, mostly from the Deep South, gathered together in Augusta, Georgia, and they split off from the Triennial Convention. They split off from what's now known as the Northern Baptist Convention over the issue of slavery. There was disagreement among the Baptists of whether or not missionaries that they would fund and send could own slaves. And the Southerners who gathered said they could. And the Northerners said, no, of course not. We're not going to send missionaries who own slaves. And so the Southerners split off. There were 293. And they formed a new mission society for the sake of preserving their prejudice. For the sake of preserving their racism. Like I said, there were 293 and they split off and decided we are going to do this. We are fine with the whole issue of slavery. And they formed their own convention and they gathered together and they sang the hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. Ironic. Better. It's tragic. Let me read you the hymn, the, letter, the lyrics to these hymns. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds. Is like to that above. Before our Father's throne we pour our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one. Our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we're called to part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. 
What horrific lies. What blasphemy. My seminary, which I'm a proud graduate of, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, started in 1859, and there were four founding faculty. All four were slaveholders. This is our original sin as a convention. And so we fast forward to the current context, and racial tensions are high in America today. There are many Many racial tensions. There's many that we can explore, but I want us to focus this morning in one sermon, 35 minutes on the black-white divide, primarily because our current context in America and because of our history in America. First, we need to define what racism is, and it's an implicit or explicit feeling or belief. Those are important words. It's either implicit or explicit, and it's a feeling or belief, not merely an action. An implicit or explicit feeling or belief that values one race over another. And I'm not too concerned in these walls or in the church in general with overt and explicit racism. We're not talking about KKK stuff. We're not talking about unleashing dogs. We're not talking about spraying with hoses. Praise God, that's mostly gone. It's not all gone. Just think of Charlottesville. It's still in our country. But that's not what I want to focus on in here. Most of the modern-day racialization is invisible to us. And I know I'm speaking as a white pastor to a predominantly white congregation. And most of the modern-day racialization is hard for us to see. It's hard for the dominant culture to see. That does not mean it does not exist. There's more covert racism, and it's, again, hard for the majority culture to see. And so people will often say, well, slavery's gone. Jim Crow's gone. Can't we just move on? Haven't we moved past that? And the answer is no, we haven't. We live in a racialized world. There's no way around it. Race is tied to the American experience. Race is an American dilemma right from the beginning, right? You know our history. We come in and we decide that we are better than the Native Americans. And so we remove them and exterminate them. We say we are the new chosen people. This is our promised land, and so let's cleanse it, ethnic cleansing. So ethnic and racial superiority, ethnic and racial prejudice has plagued our country right from the very beginning. It's deep-rooted, and I worry most of us don't think of it or don't know it or don't see it, me included. I've been on a journey for years. I think I've got a long way to go, even the way we speak. Like I'll speak of my pastor friend, Matthew Lubin. I'll say, hey, hey my black pastor friend, he, he pastors a black church. Why do I say that? Do I say that about my pastor friend, Austin Lawrence? Do I say, yeah, my white pastor friend, he pastors a white church? I don't speak that way. Why do I have to insert that adjective? I just say my friend or my teacher or my coach. I don't say my Caucasian friend, my Caucasian teacher, my Caucasian pastor. We live in a racialized culture. It's the air we breathe and tensions are high and tensions are high because racial injustice remains. And I want to mention just several areas for us to see this. I can just say names. Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Ferguson, Eric Garner, Walter Scott, Tamir Rice, Samuel DeBose, Sandra Bland, Charleston, Freddie Gray, Baltimore, Baton Rouge, Falcon Heights, Charlottesville. I feel like every week we have something new to talk about. A few months ago, we saw a couple of African-American men arrested in Starbucks in Philadelphia because they were there for two minutes and hadn't ordered drinks. Just a week and a half ago, Botham Johns murdered in his own apartment in Dallas by an off-duty cop who came and went into the wrong apartment door, unarmed and murdered. And then things that don't help is when the media then will say something like, you know, yeah, there was a small amount of marijuana found in his apartment. 
so he deserved to die? (laughs) You know what else was found in his apartment? His murdered body. Now we have Nike and Kaepernick and taking the knee. And you've got, I saw one video of this Southern Baptist pastor uh, taking his Nike gear and he's cutting it up in front of his congregation and receives a standing ovation. (laughs) Among other questions, I'm like, you already paid Nike for that gear. (laughs) Many urban schools continue to be in terrible shape, unsafe, overcrowded, poorly led. A few weeks ago, we celebrated the birthday of Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges was the first black student to integrate into elementary schools in the South. You know how old she turned? 64. She's only 64. That's my parents' age. She and her generation are not reading a history book. This is their life experience. It wasn't that long ago. It's so recent. We have continued in fruit of discriminating housing codes and deed covenants, the reality of what's been called residential apartheid. Statistically, African Americans are more likely to be unemployed. Statistically, more likely to be paid less. There was a big study in 1967. The median income for an African American was 59% of that of whites. So, well, we, we've moved past those days, right? That was 1967. There was a similar study in 1994, and they found that 62%. Average African-American income was 62% that of whites in 1994, which obviously leads to greater property rates. Whites are three times more likely to own homes, four times more likely to earn a college degree, five times less likely to be locked up. There's more going on than individual and personal responsibility. That there is, but there's more. And that's what we need to see as a majority culture. Then we've got smaller things. We've got Christian art. You know, you look at most art, you look at most kid book, and you see white Jesus. (laughs) He wasn't white. He didn't have blue eyes, didn't have wavy hair. He also wasn't scrawny. The man was a carpenter. I found, uh, found some study recently. There was some forensic science, a, a medical artist tag team with some Israeli archaeologists that would look at the skull of uh, the average man in Jesus' day. And they've given us a sketch of what, this is the best we can do of what Jesus probably looked like. None of my kids' Bibles show that kind of Jesus. What's the message we portray, though? Not until Black Panther did little black boys have a superhero they could look up to that looked like them? 2018. Many places adopting a white child can cost almost twice as much as adopting a non-white child. And we can't avoid the issue of police brutality in the last years. Thanks due in part to smartphones and chess cams. Again, it seems like something happens Every month. I know we have cops in here and I know we've got a strong culture of back the blue and that's great. What I'm asking for is empathy. To feel what our African American friends feel. To get in their shoes. We as white people, we grew up, police are our friends. They didn't. They see things differently. Because while there are many amazing officers, praise God, I think it's the majority. Not all are great. 
That's the case with every field, right? This is the case with pastors, Catholic priests, teachers. But I'll never have to have the talk with my son. I get pulled over and it doesn't really bug me. My, I'm just thinking this is an inconvenience and I'm going to waste 15 minutes. And when I get pulled over, I, I, I just grab and lean directly for whatever he's going to ask me for. Not if you're African-American. You can't do that. And so you have to have the talk with your children now. And it goes something like, listen, pull over, keep your hands on the steering wheel, put them in the air, identify who you are, tell them you are unarmed, tell them you do not intend to harm anyone, answer their questions, do not question back, comply, and then when you think it's over, you ask, officer, do I have the right to go now, please? I don't have to think twice about my kids. What African-Americans see again and again is perceived, if not real, what sure looks like an unjust just use of power. And again, just thinking of statistics, there's bullying, there's profiling, there's differential treatment amongst some. Black men are three times more likely to be killed by police. 30% of those killed are unarmed. And here's what I want us to remember is we must not forget our history that's not that far back. Historically, whites have used and have abused the criminal justice system to sustain and enable racism. We gotta know the history. Sadly, a lot of it doesn't make our history books. We forget so easily as the majority culture, African-Americans do not. It's history to us, it's pain to them. We look into the prison system Mass incarceration, it begins to feel eerily similar to a disguised form of Jim Crow, monetized form. Maybe the best thing, if you totally disagree with what I'm saying and want to leave right now, maybe the best thing you could do is watch a, a documentary, a recent documentary. Uh, you can find it on Netflix, and it's just called 13th, examining the 13th Amendment. Our churches are racialized. Most segregated hour continues to be Sunday morning. There was a 2010 study in Rice University, University sociologist Michael Emerson found that while diversity in churches is increasing, most churches are still 10 times more segregated than their neighborhoods, 20 times more segregated than nearby public schools. And so he said, I'm not a racist, and probably you're not, I hope you're not, but we all are affected by race. And so how does the Christian faith then address this perennial problem? I think that's the first thing is acknowledging that it is a perennial problem. It's nothing new. It's a global problem in the history of every country. We could think of the big ones like Germany, Japan, Rwanda, Armenia. Millions of murders in the name of race. Racial injustice did not begin in the 17th century in Jamestown. It's a result of sin. And so racism began in the Garden of Eden. And to deny racism is just bad theology. Like, would we deny greed? Would we deny pride? Would we deny lust? Yet we want to deny this sin. It makes no sense. It's Pelagian. And we're not Pelagians here, if you know anything about church history. I believe in total depravity. It's one of the few doctrines I consistently practice what I preach. And so how would I think that it wouldn't affect my view of other people? It's bad theology to try to deny it. Where there is sin, there is racism. If we believe in the world, the flesh, and the devil, if we believe in the principalities and powers of this present darkness, we shouldn't be surprised by systemic racism, just like greed and pride and lust. 
We will take whatever we can, including differing amounts of melanin and skin, skin pigmentation to try to elevate ourselves and devalue others. The world is fragmented because of sin. There's cosmic disorder. There is local disorder. And the principalities and powers want us divided. And we see this really clearly in the word of God. It starts right from the beginning, doesn't it? Cain and Abel. Or consider Jonah. If you've been here with us, we looked at Jonah for four weeks. What was Jonah's fundamental problem? It's racism. He tells us in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, God calls him to go preach to the Ninevites. He knows God is gracious and compassionate. And so he tries to escape to the sea from the maker of the sea because he would rather run from his God than for his God to show mercy to those filthy Ninevites. Racism, which again is just really a form of self-righteousness, which plagues every human who's ever lived, it's actually one of the problems that the New Testament spends a lot of time seeking to resolve. Ethnic harmony is one of the grand themes of Scripture. It's in every book. It's most clearly demonstrated in getting over the fundamental divide of all humanity, which was Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews. And this is what got Jesus in trouble so often. This is why the writers of the gospel are constantly giving these little details like where people are from or their background. So you got the Syrophoenician woman or the widow from Zarephath or the Samaritan woman or the, the commander from Syria. They want us to know where they're from because part of the ministry of Jesus is overcoming those things. Remember that time real early in the ministry of Jesus? This is Luke chapter 4. He comes and he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from it about God coming back to restore his people and they love it. And then he continues talking and he mentions two times in the Old Testament where there were lots of widows in Israel and their people, but God gave grace to a Gentile. And then he talks about a time where there were lots of lepers in Israel and your people. But he mentions a time when God gave grace to a Gentile. Do you remember what they did? They took him to a cliff and tried to throw him off. It's just amazing to me. The people of God hear the Son of God take the Word of God and show a few examples where God himself shows examples where God gave grace to Gentiles and the supposed people of God try to throw the Son of God off a cliff. It's incredible. How about the parable of the Good Samaritan? We tend to just pull this one out and dehistoricize it and just kind of moralize it, but this parable is actually about race and ethnicity. And the reason we miss it is we don't understand the background often. It's a Samaritan. When we hear that word, we've got to realize how much Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews. When Israel split, they eventually, those who went to Samaria ended up intermarrying with Assyrians. And so they were called dogs and half-breeds by Jewish people. One time Samaritans came in, they snuck into the temple and they, they desecrated it with human bones. One time there were some Jewish pilgrims heading to Jerusalem and some Samaritans in this village of Ganae killed both of them. Word got back, a mob of Jews came back, murdered everyone in the village of Ganae and burned it to the grounds. These two people had bad history and here Jesus comes. It's not unlike the history of blacks and whites in America, our history and the hostility there. Let's look at it. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Let's look at the Good Samaritan. 
Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going, Jesus goes to once upon a time mode. You know when Jesus goes into once upon a time mode, you better have a second pair of pants on. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest, surely he's going to be the hero, right? Was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He's not willing to have his, his agenda interrupted. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite, surely the Levite will be the hero. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man says, he can't even say Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's no wonder Jesus was killed. This would have shocked his first audience. Transcending race, transcending ethnic background, upholding a Samaritan as the exemplary one over the priest and over the Levite. This would fundamentally reorder and reshape their reality. Old prejudice must pass away being nailed to the cross of Christ. It's the same with the parable of the ten lepers. You remember that? Jesus heals ten lepers and they go on on their way. One of them comes back and says, thank you. And we read in the Bible, now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus says, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Again, Jesus upholds the foreigner as the one rightly responding to him. Or just think about John 4. We don't have time to go there, but the, the Samaritan woman for Jesus, it's grace that replaces race. And that's why Luke says the gospel must first go to Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then all the ends of the earth. And then we see as the church grows in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, it does. Turn over a few, a few books to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm 
mentioned that the world is broken, it's fallen, it's alienated, it's fragmented, it's disordered, and so we ought not to be surprised and certainly shouldn't deny the reality of racism. It started in the Garden of Eden, continues today, but God has a plan to make it all right. And he's already started this plan through Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, there the second half. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, here it is, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is God's cosmic plan of reconciliation. And the way he starts to unite all things in Jesus Christ is by uniting Jews and Gentiles. Again, that was the fundamental division of the world in that day. They hated each other. Samaritans were Gentiles, of course. There was a Jewish prayer that was prayed daily. God, thank you. You didn't make me a Gentile. There were some Jewish writings that said Gentiles existed for nothing else for, than for the fuel of the fires of hell. And Christ comes and makes the two one. Look at chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but... Now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who's made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Notice the situation before Christ. Look at some of the language used. Alienation. And again, this is horizontal. Alienation, separate, strangers, without hope, far off. Ask the question, how does sin affect racial relations? The word here in Ephesians chapter 2 is outside of Christ, hostility. He says it two times, verse 14 and verse 16. Hostile toward other races and ethnicities before Christ, but notice the situation after Christ. Words like brought near, peace, both have access, made us both one by removing the wall that caused hostility. No longer strangers, no longer aliens, but fellow citizens, members of the same household, family, a unified community around Christ our King. A new man in place of the two, so making peace. A new humanity. Racial prejudice must be put aside for the sake of unity around the king, the one in whom God is uniting all things. This is the plan of God. This is the purpose of God. Flip over a page to chapter 3. Look at verse 8. To me... 
Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here's the purpose. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is through the church this community that has all sorts of diverse backgrounds and ethnicities that are now united around King Jesus. It's through this community that God is showing off his manifold witness to the rulers and powers. This is the plan of God. Diverse backgrounds, races, cultures united around Jesus. Bearing witness to the watching world that King Jesus has the power to overcome such barriers. And then he calls us to walk in unity. Walk in this unity. Chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience. That's what we're going to need. Bearing with one another in love because we're so different. See things so differently, have different backgrounds. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Can you see how racism, especially in the church, is a devastating failure to keep the vision God has given the church? It is the opposite of the will of God. We are the new humanity, the new creation community, a sign, a foretaste, a preview of the multi-ethnic kingdom of Christ. And this ability of the Christian faith to unite diverse backgrounds is one of the compelling aspects for its growth in the early church. It's what led to its expansion. Sociologist and historian Rodner Stark has got this book called The Rise of Christianity, which is just that. It's about the rise of Christianity. And he lists racial integration as one of the things, one of the main things that made the early church distinct from other religious groups and led to its expansion across cultures, led to its rapid growth. Local churches were the one place in the Roman Empire where there was racial harmony because everything was focused on Christ Jesus and everything else became secondary and tertiary. Their racial harmony gave them a chance to explain Jesus is not only the Lord of the Jews, he's the Lord of all humanity, the Savior of every race. The early church fathers called the church a third race. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says we shouldn't offend Jews, we shouldn't offend Greeks, and we shouldn't offend the church. We don't fit any category. We're not Jews, we're not Greeks. Of course, that's all humanity. No, we're a third entity. We're the church. We're what Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community. And it's not that we're seeking to be colorblind, not a race that doesn't see race, but we're a community where our third race matters more than our first race. We see two fundamental races in Christ and in Adam. 
Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11, speaking of the church, says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Whatever division or fragmentation you can think of, it does not matter here, or at least it should not matter here. Christ is all. One commentator on this verse says, Nobody must allow prejudices from their pre-Christian days to distort the new humanity which God created in and through the new man. Red, yellow, black, or white, they are precious in his sight. So are Southern Baptists racist? We've got a bad track record, but we're not when we're being faithful to the vision God's given us. We are not when we're being faithful to our marching orders. And Christians have historically opposed racism stronger than any other, right from the beginning, right? As the Roman Empire falls, the church is working for abolition. Think of some of the big names that we know. It was their Christian faith that drove them. William Wilberforce, Desmond Tutu in South Africa, Martin Luther King Jr. was first and foremost a Baptist pastor. There's so many other places we can go. I just want you to see that the church ought to be the one place more than any other where racism is fought against and racial reconciliation is pursued. It saddens me that in many ways the secular world is doing better. So let me speak to the church here for a minute. What are our next steps? No quick fix, but we can all do our part. I like the way one pastor described the pattern. It can look like this. We can move along the spectrum of ignorance awareness, interaction, and then gospel community. And so let me just mention six ways that I think we can move along the spectrum. Number one, should be common sense. We value all people because all people are made in the image of God. Acts 17 says he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. We all come from one man. We all come from one blood. We value all people. Another way of saying this is we love our neighbor. Whether Levite or Samaritan, we love our neighbor. Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only to your own interests. Majority culture needs to hear that. Let each of us, believers in Jesus Christ and the dominant culture, not look only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. This is what God does, he hears the cry of the oppressed. He goes to the marginalized. Number two, and probably most importantly in this room, is examine yourself. I think because of our sin nature, every person is tainted by the sin of racism. Every person who's ever lived. Because it's a form of self-righteousness that the gospel should crucify. So is there any racism in you that needs to be crucified nailed to the cross of Christ and maybe your gut answer is no 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 well let me just encourage you just to pray and ask the spirit of God to test your heart and examine your heart columnist Jack White says the most insidious racism is among those who don't think they harbor any and if you know there is or the Lord shows you that there is what do you do well you confess it as sin you turn from it and you cling to the finished work of Christ on your behalf. So examine yourself. Number three, realize the gospel of Jesus Christ has direct implications for racial reconciliation. It's interesting. There's a lot of tension, as I mentioned. There's even tension in the evangelical world. Some would say, I shouldn't even be talking about this. Won't you just stick to preaching the gospel, pastor? 
What's fascinating is this week I reread Martin Luther King Jr.'s letters from a Birmingham jail, which he wrote to white pastors who told him he needed to slow down. And they were the same thing. They were saying the same thing to him then. Just focus on the gospel. What we need to understand is the gospel has direct implications for this. Just to give you one example, in the book of Galatians, remember what Galatians is about. You have the church planted and you have these Jews coming in basically saying, yeah, you need to trust in Jesus. You also need to become Jews. So we call Judaize to adopt the customs of the Jews. Be like us. That was the message. So Paul preaches the gospel and says, no, every person is a sinner and every person is justified, declared in the right the same way. That is by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works whether Jewish or otherwise. So that should have been clear. That was clear among Peter and Paul. Just think about the book of Acts. Peter saw that vision of the food coming down with his pork chops and bacon-wrapped shrimp, and the Lord said, eat it, you're good. The old covenant is going away. God is saving Gentiles. It was pounded in his head. He knew better. Yet, in the book of Galatians, he's there eating with his Gentile friends. And some Jews come over. I think they were probably unbelieving Jews. But they start to come in, and you remember what Peter does? This is all in Galatians chapter 2. He removes himself from the table. He's saying, hey, we're all together in this right now, brothers and sisters in Christ, sharing our bacon. Uh Uh-oh, here comes some Jewish friends. Uh, i got to go. See you all later. And the message communicated is they're JV Christians or not Christians at all. And you remember what Paul does? Paul comes and condemns him to his face. Because he stood condemned, it's a divine passive. Paul's saying he stood condemned by God if he didn't repent. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says to Peter, you were not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Peter's cowardice, his hypocrisy, his racism, his step of inconsistence was not in line with the truth of the gospel. Number four, Call for repentance where needed and extend forgiveness where needed. You see it? Call out. Grant forgiveness. To minority brothers and sisters, accept our forgiveness. Sometimes it seems like we've got to prove ourselves and earn it, but that's also not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Extend forgiveness. Number five, form ethnically diverse friendships. Oh, man, I think this goes so far. (laughs) To have friends that are different than you and learn to be empathetic, to learn how the other feels, being intentional, being quick to listen, being slow to speak, slow to get angry, James would tell us. Number six, pursue unity. We saw this in chapter four, be eager to maintain the spirit of the unity in bond of peace, the unity of the church, Ephesians 3, bears witness to the powers that God is all wise. God is all powerful. Our Lord prayed this. He said that we would be one even as him and the Father are one so that the world might know that you sent me. Let's pursue unity. Southside, we've got work to do. One of the easiest ways to show we have work to do is maybe today, another time, come and, and just walk around two or three or four of these blocks. And notice the ethnic diversity. And then look around this room and notice the lack of ethnic diversity. Notice the discrepancy. J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he said this. He said, the church should reflect the diversity of its community. This is where I think we have the most work to do. 
The church should reflect the diversity of its community and declare the diversity of the kingdom. Unity across race and ethnicity is one of the hallmarks of the Christian gospel. It's a sign to the world that the gospel has real power and Christ is all in all. So we're Southern Baptist racists. Well, speaking of our denomination, we've come a long way. We've got a long way to go. But in 1995, and yeah, it took us that long. In 1995, we corporately confessed, repented, and repudiated our past actions. Some whites hated it. Some blacks said too little too late, and they were right. But confession is an aspect of justice, and confession is a precursor to reconciliation, so it was needed. Since 1845, our founding, we've passed 31 resolutions on race. In 2012, we had our first African-American president, Fred Luter. There's been progress, and I want to say most of the progress, though, is due to the steady initiative of our black brothers and sisters in Christ. But we're making way. We're going to continue to say stupid things. We're sorry. We're going to continue to do stupid things. We're still going to battle tokenism and paternalism, but here's the thing. I can speak for the majority. We realize our original sin and what it is, and we're striving to make it right. We are striving to get in tune with God's purpose and God's plan. The plan that he showed way back in Genesis chapter 12 is he forms the people of God. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and your family, and through your family, I'm going to bring blessing to all the nations. That was his plan. That was his purpose right from the beginning. He is making good on that promise. He will continue to make good on that promise until glory. And if there are racists who claim the name of Christ, they're not going to enjoy glory. Revelation chapter 5, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 